So today's scripture is uh, Romans 9:30 through 10:13. So what does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is Romans 10, 1 to 13, version 7. Just saying. <laughs> version 7 was written like at 6.30 this morning. Um, there is so much in this little passage. And I've really wrestled with how to bring this message in a way that's plain to us and simple. Because I could easily go into an exegetical, hermeneological, eschatological summary of what Paul's saying here. But I have a way simpler way of saying that. Here's my way simpler way of saying all that. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the lens. And Jesus is Lord. Now, why did I start with those big words? If you were seminarians, I would focus on that. I would be teaching you what is the correct exegesis, what is the correct hermeneutics, which is a fancy word to mean what's the, 
how we are interpreting things. Uh, exegesis is what does this mean in the whole of the story and the context. And eschatological is what is this saying about our present, our past, and our future? Well, Jesus is the end. Jesus is the lens. And Jesus is the Lord. What does all that mean for us? If you remember correctly, we have been looking at Romans backwards. We started with chapter 12, and we went through basically to the end. We, we didn't do the very last chapter, where it's mostly just Paul's personal remarks and greetings, etc. And now we're in the middle part, where we've gone from 7 until 10, and next week we'll wrap 10 up. Uh, Mike will finish that up for us. And then in the fall, we're going to pick up and do the first part of Romans. But I want to tell you something that's happening right here in this middle piece, in this chapter 10, is Paul is taking everything he has said thus far and everything that he's going to say, starting in chapter 12, and he has summarized it for his hearers right here in chapter 10. In many ways, the more I read chapter 10, the more I realized what Paul has done right here in a few short verses, and I'm only looking at the first 13, is he told the gospel again. Go home and read that. The whole gospel is sitting right here. And Paul has brought the Jewish hearers, the new Jewish believers, and the Gentile believers to this point where he is now declaring this is what it's all about. And then he leads us into that beautiful chapter in Romans 12, which we started. Last week, Mike took us through chapter 9, the last couple of weeks, chapter 9. And he summarized it this way. He said, God is sovereign, God is merciful, and God is just. God is sovereign, God is merciful, and God is just. Paul worked all that through and presented that, and he re-explained it to especially those Jewish Christians who were really struggling, really struggling with the fact that the Gentiles had been invited in and they did not have to live by the rule of the law. They did not have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow food rules. They didn't have to follow rituals and religious rites that the Jewish people had to work so hard at to understand that they've attained their righteousness. They tried, as Paul writes in this passage, to attain this righteousness all on their own by observing these rules and laws. And here comes Jesus, who does what Jesus does and teaches what Jesus teaches and says, Gentiles, come on in. Everybody else, come on in. You already have attained the same righteousness as those have worked really hard all this time. Come on in. Come on in. So Paul says at the end of chapter 9 where Mike left us off, what does all this mean? Well, even though the Gentiles who were not trying to follow God's standards they were made right with God. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? They weren't trying to follow God's standards, and yet they were made right with God. How could that be? 
because Jesus is the end of what that was. Jesus is the fulfillment of what that was. And what Jesus did is we became Jesus's righteousness because of his sacrifice. We are right because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. The Jewish believers are right because of what Jesus did, not because of those centuries of following the law. Now, God is not throwing the law out. And Jesus is very clear about that, and Paul reiterates it over and over again in the Scripture. What he's saying is, the law can't make you righteous. Only Jesus can make me and you and any other sinner righteous. Only Jesus. There is no one else. There is no other way. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the end. And we need to focus on Jesus. So easy to focus on ourselves. And then Paul goes on by saying, the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, they never succeeded. Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine Christians right now, some teacher, theologian, Preacher, pastor, me, telling you what you have done so far, you haven't succeeded in getting where you think you got. Thinking the thoughts you think, obeying what you think is right living if you're a Christian, has not got you where you think you've got. You are not any better than the one who's not even trying. That's what the scripture says. You are no better. I am no better than the one who is trying, who did all the right things, who went to Sunday school, who read their Bible every night, who said their prayers on their knees five times a day, who bowed down before the Lord in, in asquience and honor and in supplication. The ones who aren't trying are made right as you are. Why? Because Jesus is the end. He did it already for all humanity, for all time. All, all are called the children of God because all are the creation of God. Wow. Can you imagine how upset some of these Jewish folk were? This is why the religious leaders of the day had such a problem with Jesus. So much so that Jesus himself, and Paul reiterates, and Moses said it back in Deuteronomy, because that's where this quote comes from, this is your stumbling stone. Jesus himself and what he did is my stumbling stone. It's your stumbling stone too. If you forget that Jesus is the end. And whether I've worked really hard at being faithful and trustworthy and good and loving, it does not get me any more cred than if I wasn't trying at all. Now, that almost sounds like, well, why are we doing any of this then? Because, you know, there's some really awesome ways I'd like to be out there right now. <laughs> or maybe not. I don't think most of them are that awesome, to be honest. But, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you're pursuing, don't hear me wrong, that's not 
what Paul is saying here. And it's certainly not what Jesus was saying. Because the second point is, Jesus is the end. We can't do anything. Our good work, our good living does not make us more righteous than the one who comes to faith tomorrow and didn't even try. The reward is the same. The life of God that we get to enter into and live into is the same. We're no better. But the second point is Jesus is the lens. So here we have Paul who's making this beautiful summary of the Gospels. He points out, Jesus is your stumbling stone. And I think that every time I get stuck on something, I got to go back to that. Every time I start to think that somebody, when I think, how are they living like they believe that Jesus is Lord? Because sometimes it really doesn't look like. Could they really be Christian? I have to stop at Jesus is my stumbling stone. Because Jesus already made them right. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you have been saved. The ones who worked hard and the ones who haven't tried at all, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you have been saved. That's that assurance of salvation that we stumble all over again. What does that mean? Can you lose your salvation, Paul talks about later? No. Why? Because it isn't about you. It isn't about them. It isn't about me. It's all about Jesus. He is the end. So then Paul says, you know, you Jews, you had great enthusiasm for God. I know you love God. I know you have tried your best, but it's misdirected zeal. It says in the New Living Version, which is what Nellie read to us this morning, misdirected zeal. What does he mean by that? And what do I mean when I say Jesus is the lens? Paul has taken them from one through to where we're at now by helping the Jewish believers and the Jewish people see God's mercy, justice, and grace, and forgiveness, and redemptive plan through a different lens. The lens of Jesus. We see Jesus do it all the time. You've heard it said, but I say. The scriptures tell us to hate our enemy. But I'm telling you to love your enemy. Oh, wait, I'm telling you more. Go the extra mile with your enemy. Don't just love your enemy. Show your enemy you love them. Go the extra mile. Don't just say it. Believe it and live it and do it. Paul is helping these Jewish believers refocus and look now through Jesus' lens. We often get ourselves stuck because we open up this amazing story, this book of God's work among humans, of God's creation, his plan, his never leaving us, his always being near us, his, his, his ability, his mercy to be able to continue to walk with us, sinners, all of us, falling short of the glory of God, 
all of us. All the time, all of us. This amazing story of God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness for all that he's created, fulfilled in Jesus the end by walking with us and being with us, near with us. What is misdirected zeal? What does Paul mean by this? What does it mean that my zeal could be misdirected? It's when I forget that Jesus is my stumbling block. It's when I forget that Jesus is the interpreter of the story now. It's when I forget that it's not up to me, that it's up to God, that God will save whom he saves, and he will guide whom he guides, and he will uh, convict who he convicts, and he will draw all who will look to him. He'll draw us if we look to him. He will draw your neighbor if you look to them. We don't have to. We just need to tell them the story. Jesus is the end, Jesus is the lens, and Jesus is Lord. My overzealousness can cause me to judge people. My overzealousness can cause me to decide who's in and who's out. My overzealousness could, could cause me to say, this, they can't possibly be because. Anyone ever done any of those things before? I know I have. I know I still do. I know I have to stop myself. You remember what Jesus called all that from several weeks ago? Plank eye disease. Hmm? Telephone pole? <laughs> the telephone pole. She's remembering the image. The plank eye disease. Stop it. Don't let Scripture be your stumbling block because you're reading it through the lens of your own understandings, of my own understandings, without putting it back through the Jesus lens first. Jesus reinterpreted this whole story. That's his hermeneutic, which, as I said, is how we interpret things. If we are interpreting this scripture without putting it back through the Jesus lens, we're going to have misdirected zeal. We just are. Because that's what happens to us. Now, I want to say another thing about this book. I think this is the most beautiful story ever written. I think there is life in here. I think there is hope in here. I know there's correction in here. I know there's reproof in here. Paul says that to Timothy. The word of God, all scripture, is useful for all these things, for guiding us, for comforting us, for bringing us back to the heart of God, for, for convicting us of when we really are getting on to our own religious zeal or our own wicked zeal and forgetting the God who created us all. I think this is an amazing story. Now, I want to say some two things about this. The first of all is when Paul writes this and says that all scripture is good, for correction and reproof and guidance and comfort, all these things, he's not referring to anything he wrote. 
Can I just say that again? He is not referring to anything he wrote. Paul was not that arrogant that he thought he was writing scripture. Paul was a theologian. He was helping us understand this story of God through this new lens of Jesus. And why was he helping us? Because Paul was a misdirected zealot himself. Do you remember that? And it took him being struck down blind before he could see the story of God through the Jesus lens. Where is God striking us down blind? So we can see the story of God through Jesus' lens. Paul, when he's talking about Scripture, is talking about the law, the Old Testament, the Scripture that brings life, not death. That's what he's talking about. And he uses it, as Mike pointed out last week, and as we can see, there's like another 11 Old Testament um, references in chapter 10. I think there was 11 last week in chapter 9. There's another 11 in chapter 10. In all of Romans, there's 65. Because he's helping us reinterpret and understand the word of God, the scriptures, through a Jesus lens. Why? Because this book doesn't have any authority at all. God has the authority. And all authority was given to Jesus by God. All authority in heaven and earth. That's why we have to, can only properly read this through our Jesus lens. Through Jesus' understanding of who God is, of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's heart, of God's desires, of what breaks God's heart, what makes God's heart swell with joy. My joy is complete, Jesus said. His heart is swelling. Because people are coming to him and seeing and understanding God through this Jesus lens. Jesus is the end. And Jesus is the lens. Let's not get stuck. We have lots of hard things to wrestle through, folk. It's not that this is the most challenging of times or it's the best of times or the worst of times, to quote a famous opening, one of the best first lines of a novel ever. Tale of Two Cities. But we're in challenging times because our lens, I think, has gotten foggy, maybe even darkened. And we're facing things we've never had to wrestle with. And they're hard. And they're challenging. Cultural expert Mark Sayers, who's a, a pastor of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia, but he studies culture and he studies the, the way that culture shapes the church in the West. Or as he likes to say, how the church in the West shapes culture. Think about that. And he says, one of the biggest challenges we're in right now, as he said, we were in this period for a time in, in, you know, from 1960-ish onward, where we were in what we called a pluralistic time. 
A pluralistic time was a time when we began to accept one another's differences a little bit more. I mean, we had to fight hard for them. June 19th is a, or what did, Juneteenth. <laughs> Juneteenth is an example of how hard humans have had to fight to shift the wrongs and the lenses through which we view one another through. And in a pluralistic time, we began to say, well, I don't agree with you, Greg, on this or that scripture, theological issue, cultural issue, sociological issue. I don't agree with you, but that's okay. We, we'll, we, we can still do life together. We'll still figure it out. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe you're wrong, maybe we're both wrong. But we can figure this out. Now, I'm not saying that's ideal. I'm just saying this was the time we were in. And we have now moved into what Mark Sayers is calling a contested time. There is no longer that grace there. It's if you don't agree with me, and you don't agree with exactly how I see it, then actually you're out. You're wrong, you're canceled, you're dismissed, and your voice has no merit here. Do you see how that can shape our lens? How it can cloud our lens? How it can make it so we stop seeing things through Jesus' lens and back into our misdirected zealots, zealousy, our misdirected zeal. It's this saying, you're in and you're out. But that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. He's saying, because Jesus is the end, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. We could have different hermeneutical, interpretive differences of the scripture. And one of us will be right, one of us will be wrong, or both of us will be wrong, or both of us will be right. But the point is, we're still saved. Therefore, we need to view one another. Okay. Well, you just took me off my preach, man. <laughs> I am totally going to get into it. Because here's where Paul leads us. <laughs> I totally forgot what I was saying. Here's where Paul leads us. Oh, I actually want to read it through um, the New Living here. Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, he says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 30. Anyone know what happened in Deuteronomy 30? Well, Mike led us into some of it last week. We had that golden calf thing happen. 
Moses is trying to redirect the people. We have him saying, here's an offer of life and death. Choose life. God offers us life, not death. Choose life. Choose it. But he uses these words, and the brackets in your scripture where it says to bring Christ down, to bring Christ back to life. Again, those are added editorial notes because Paul is taking that scripture and putting it through a Jesus lens. You don't have to go, we don't have to have Jesus come here again to tell us what's right and wrong. We don't have to send people in Deuteronomy. It says send people over the sea, which, by the way, was perilous. And all evil happened in the sea. If you go back into understanding why water and the sea was so important from the story of creation throughout in the culture, it's because there was power in the sea. That's why you had gods of the sea, and they usually weren't very nice. Because the sea was dangerous. You don't have to go into dangerous places. You don't have to descend into the deep and risk your life to find Jesus. Because Jesus is right here. Paul says it. The message is close at hand. It's in your lips and your heart. Where is the message? In your lips and heart. We don't have to go looking all over trying to find it. It is here. And this is bringing us to the Jesus is Lord and then this amazing conclusion that Paul leads us to in Romans 12. So we're getting there. We'll be there in a minute. Jesus is Lord. That's what he said, goes on to talk about. The message is the very message that we preach. Here's the gospel. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. He says it twice. Believing in your heart, receiving, accepting, receiving what was given to you that God has made us right. Not on our own merits, not because we're great, but because Jesus is righteous. He is all righteousness. And we now are clothed in his righteousness. If we openly confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. Now, I know all of us would say, Jesus is Lord, but is it open? Do other people know Jesus is Lord in our lives? And I don't mean because we told them, but because we live like that. We live like Jesus is Lord in our lives. We live like we are loving our enemies. We live like we are extending that great mercy that Mike preached on last week to others. It isn't ours to hold on to. We have to confess it. We have to share it. That confession isn't just to say, I believe it. That confession is to share it with others. That lordship requires us to lay down our own lives, our own self-centeredness, our own pleasures, our own joys, and take on that amazing 
life that God offers us. I want to do it openly so that others are curious about this amazing life. Jesus is Lord. Just thinking it, just saying it. That's not what Paul is saying here, and it's certainly not the gospel that God calls us to. This gospel, this good news, we stumble over it. It's really hard for us. It can be really hard for me to extend the same grace that I want extended to me and has been extended to me by God. It can be really hard to extend the same mercy that has been extended to me and has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so many other things. Jesus can be our stumbling stone even now. If we don't continually remind ourselves to read the story through the Jesus lens. Read it through the Jesus lens. This is what Paul's calling the Jewish Christians in Rome to understand. Read it through the Jesus lens. As scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to disgrace or to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. We do have a journey of discipleship and sanctification. But we are saved. Anyone is saved who calls on the name of the Lord, who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart. And like Paul says, that's the message, the very message that we preach. And that, I believe, is how God does justice. Because we didn't deserve it. None of us, no one, deserves this. Why? Because we are still sinners, my friends. And lest we forget it, read your word and find out where you're stuck, what you're stumbling over. Because usually what we're stumbling over in Jesus is sin. Our own, by the way, not others. Not meant to stumble over Mike's sin, or you're not meant to stumble over mine. We all stumble over our own. We don't deserve it. God gave his mercy while we were still sinners. While we're still sinners. He gives generously to all who call on him, Paul writes. If we start there, we open up room for the Holy Spirit to work in us and to work in others. We don't hinder the Spirit to work in others. This is the gospel. This is the story of the God who saves. Not the God who shames, disgraces, condemns, but the God who saves those who trust in Jesus. Can we trust in him 
with one another? Can we trust that God is at work in us? That he isn't far away. We don't have to call him down. We don't have to bring him up. He's right here working with us in the world. We sang about it already. He is the way maker. He makes the way for humans to come to him, to grow in him, to be discipled in him. And it's because of his great mercy. It's because of his great love. It's because of God's justice, and it's because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so he leads us to this chapter 12, coming out of, out of 10 and 11. He leads us here, and he says, So therefore, because of God's great mercy, because of God's great love, because of God's great justice, because Jesus is the end, and Jesus is the lens, and Jesus is Lord, I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of all this, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is what then helps us to not conform to the world, but to be transformed by the Spirit, by the lens we are now seeing this amazing story of God and humans and the journey to restoration and reconciliation and redemption that we are all on and will be on as long as we have breath in us. Jesus is God with us. He has saved us from our sin, our own unrighteousness, and made us righteous because he is righteous, not because we are. He has set up the kingdom of God where we love God and others, where we where we are participants in a ministry of reconciliation, not division, not contested space, a ministry of reconciliation. He has ended the law or the religious aspects of it. He has done it. He is our authority, our Lord. This is the gospel, my friends, and it is worth talking about. Amen? Amen. Jesus is the end. Jesus is the lens. And Jesus is the Lord.